Thank you for choosing the podcast of East Haven Baptist Church in Brookhaven, Mississippi. For more information on the ministries of East Haven and to access videos and sermon notes from our services, visit www.easthaven.net. Good morning, East Haven. That was tepid at best. Good morning, East Haven. Thank you. I appreciate that. You, you know how I roll. I've been here before. Uh, I was tempted to say something sort of smart, Alec, like, what's new? I'm so sorry. Four years ago, uh, my wife, Kathy, my beautiful bride here of 40 years, and I came and stood in that door. It was a, an evening where our son had come with a worship team to lead worship for a countywide event. It was either see you at the pole or maybe a countywide disciple now. But they were leading worship and we walked up to the back and Robert and Michelle, who we knew from uh, our Broadmoor days and their Broadmoor days, greeted us and said, Gary, you're going to love our new pastor. I mean, this guy, you guys are going to connect. So I thought to myself, knowing Robert and Michelle, okay, okay, they like their pastor. And Dustin stepped out, and we connected immediately. I just laughed about it later. I said, he's a renaissance man. He's bigger than life. He's just crazy. And uh, I, I didn't, couldn't quite get my hands around Dustin. Any of you know what I mean? Like, I'm trying to figure him out. I thought he probably was from North Carolina or Texas or Kansas or Connecticut. And I found out he was from Kemper County. I couldn't believe it. I'd never met anybody from Kemper County who could tell a story and was that much of a man's man and artistic and thoughtful and well-read and such a great storyteller all rolled into one. Just love Dustin. And now he's moving on. Is that correct? You should be sad. You, You should be, your heart should be mourning just a little bit. And I trust it is, but I want you to know that I'm about 50 years beyond believing there are any perfect pastors or any perfect churches or any perfect people. We're all broken and fallen, and together we're broken and fallen together. Can I get an amen? So there are no perfect places, no perfect people, and there's certainly no perfect pastors. Uh, The role of pastor in our churches is really complicated in our culture and the way we do church. We expect a pastor to be Uh, just a premier world-class speaker, and we want him to be a consummate leader, and we want him to be warm and pastoral and every place at the same time. And it's very difficult to find that guy because they don't exist. Uh, You you have some strengths and weaknesses, and and Dustin, I'm sure some of you would say, well, I can think of some place where he fell short in your estimation But all the reports I've gotten and spending time with your staff and being here multiple times over the last several years, I just greatly appreciate his ministry. Now, now that I'm finished bragging on him, I've I've got the ultimate brag, Rebecca. How did that happen? Can somebody tell me? Just God's grace to Dustin, I guess. That's an unbelievable uh, story, and we were so grateful when God put them together, and We're sad with you in a different way about Dustin's, uh, what looks like his departure to Tennessee to pastor. But the reality is, and I've said this for many, many years, we're all interim. I don't know if you know this or not, but we're all passing through. And just when you think things are permanent, 
they are not. Uh, change is one of the dynamics of life. And I heard recently, and I think it's uh, apropos that people don't hate change, they hate loss. And for a lot of us, we're comfortable with what we become comfortable with. And the thought of having to readjust, uh, regain relationship and trust and stories and history, uh, for some of us, it's kind of tiring. We like what we like. We like who we like, and we like the way things are. Now, things here at East Haven uh, are just, from all objective measures, just pretty exciting. I love this church. You guys are so easy to love. And I have no authority to do this, but I'd just like to declare you to have the prettiest and best French horn section (laughs) in the state of Mississippi. Now, as far as praise teams and orchestras go, I'm not sure you don't have maybe the only French horn section in the state of Mississippi outside of maybe First Baptist Jackson. And those two young ladies played well and they're beautiful. So you, you get a little, I might send you a plaque, prettiest, most talented French horn section in Mississippi. Worship team and Robert, thank you for leading us so beautifully this morning. I'm going to walk through a lot of scripture this morning because if I might, I don't want to be presumptuous, but in this moment for your church, I want to bring you some encouragement and I want to bring you a reminder, a remembering together this morning. Uh, I crafted a phrase and it goes like this, significant change brings an opportunity to reconsider the church's purpose, passion, and perspective. Significant change brings an opportunity to to reconsider the church's purpose, passion, and perspective. And purpose and passion and perspective are what I'd like for us to consider this morning for just a little while. When I talk about significant change in in the moment here at East Haven, it's a pastor transition. And if you've been here for a while, and many of you have been here for years, you've seen pastors Uh, Come to pastor, spend some time here, and move on to the next assignment. Transitions and change are a part of the landscape. But for many churches, some of which I could call their name and you would know them, there have been other significant changes or challenges that have taken them to a point of reconsidering their purpose and their passion and their perspective. Let me give you one, if I might. Uh, First Baptist Gulfport uh, was a long-standing traditional church on the, the beach drive, steepled traditional sanctuary, big program, great heritage of pastors and people for a hundred years. And Katrina took that building down to the foundation. And in that church's life with Jimmy Stewart, who is the pastor, with his leadership and others, they moved the physical plant, everybody hear me, Literally, the physical plant is not the church. I hope you're aware of this. But they moved their physical plant, their gathering place, what we typically call the church. They moved it north to uh, an interstate off of that property. It gave them a number of opportunities that were forward-looking. They were able to see additional acreage where they were landlocked somewhat on the beach road. It gave them an opportunity to rethink their educational space. It provided some infrastructure for worship the way they were doing worship that really had been a stretch in their building because of the dynamics of the building itself and 
the high ceilings and the sound systems and some other things, they were able to look down the road with God's guidance. It was a significant change, a significant moment. It was terrible. It was very, very difficult. And people uh, lost the dream of rebuilding on that location. And probably to this day, there are people who are waiting to build a steeple that looks just like the steeple that was on the coast at First Baptist Gulfport. But the church had an opportunity to reconsider their purpose and their passion and their perspective. And change does that. When you find out that you have a health crisis and there's a bad diagnosis, when your child is born or when somebody passes away, when there's a job gained or a job lost, when there's a retirement that arrives at just the right time, it's a significant change and it allows us individually as well as corporately to think about our purpose, our passion, and our perspective. I want to talk about the church's purpose for just a couple of moments. The Westminster Catechism. Now, you may have heard that before. Some of you may have grown up in a tradition that recognized, celebrated, or recited the Westminster Catechism at some point. But the Westminster Catechism has this phrase about the chief end of man. The chief end of man, in other words, the chief purpose, is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. The chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. Now, can I do a little church history to the side for just a moment? Baptist, and this will matter little to many of you, but to some of you, you will hear this. Baptists have prided ourselves over the centuries, are not being a creedal people. And what that means is we don't have a hierarchy that presents a touchstone that says you have to recite, say, and adhere to this liturgy to be a part of our denomination or a part of this movement. Uh, We have no pope. We have no one apostle that speaks over us as a denomination. We're Uh, believing in the priesthood of each believer and the congregational polity, it's what Baptists do. So we're kind of proud of using this line, especially in academic circles, that we're not a creedal people. And really, the Westminster Catechism is a creed, to be clear. Now, I, I was caught short one day in a conversation with a friend of mine who, while we were in Jackson and I was pastoring, he was on our staff, very, very bright, And he had decided, for proximity's sake and a course of study, he would go to Reformed Baptist Theological Seminary. uh, Reformed Baptist, Reformed Theological Seminary, pardon me. And he went to Reformed, and he came back, and he was talking about this creed dynamic. And he said, his professor said, and this caught me up short, the professor said, uh, Baptists are actually creedal people. They believe the last thing they heard. I thought that was a little snarky, frankly. And then he said, but we have delved deeply into God's word for 400 years to distill what we believe about man and God. And I was caught a little short with that because we tend to believe the last powerful, strong communicator, well-known pastor book we read where this confession really summarizes our purpose as an individual. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Now, I quite often talk about this principle. What is true individually? Like if you're 
chief end, your purpose is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever individually, that can be extrapolated. In other words, that can be extended to being corporate. Our, as the church, not your, but the church, our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. It's about bringing glory to God, and we do that internally within the body of Christ, and we do it externally. The word enjoy is an interesting word because we're really commanded to have joy, and then that is something that God brings to us by the work of His Spirit. So almost everybody in here could name all of or some of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, meekness, gentleness, self-control. We can name those from the book of Galatians. It's something that God brings as His Spirit works from the inside out in us. So to enjoy God is an interesting dynamic because God's the one who actually brings the joy, and yet by the presence and power of His Holy Spirit in us, He commands us to be people of joy. The Word of God says, uh, Habakkuk, which you probably were not in this morning in your quiet time, I'm guessing, but I love this verse, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Or Nehemiah, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Joy is really a command. It's not about our feelings. It's not about our circumstance. It's a, it's a command to take joy in the Lord. And then it's an evidence of the Lord in us working His presence out. And that command for joy should be applied, I believe, both individually and corporately. Now, what does that mean? That means in Brookhaven, people who know you and who identify you individually or corporately as East Haven ought to see a body of people who are identified by joy and love and peace and kindness and and the rest of the fruit of the Spirit, but certainly by joy. There ought to be something in us that transcends circumstance. So when you have a terrible diagnosis, when you have a difficult situation, when you struggle uh, with job or financially or in relationship or with mental health or whatever that, that area of your life is that challenges you, there ought to be a joy that transcends that, that, if you will, passes through that and carries us through because it's a faithful joy in the Lord. We're the church. Uh, and that's not me speaking as a part of East Haven, but we're the church, we're the body of Christ, and we're called the family of God in places. We are members of a body. We're even the bride of Christ. And that's a beautiful picture in Scripture. The bride of Christ, I mean, what more intimate picture could God give us of how He loves us and how He calls us to Himself? And that's who we are. And whether you're 75 today or you're 15, you're a part of the church. You're part of the bride of Christ. And and the very God of the universe loves you and has called you to himself and has knit us together as the bride of Christ. Now, very briefly this morning, and I, I would love to talk about this at length, but what happens when we forget our purpose? Well, we begin to drift. And when we drift, we, we lose our focus and we make decisions in our life individually or sometimes as a church body that are not driven by our chief end of our life, which is to glorify God, but they become more and more about us individually or us corporately. Now, 
1974, 75, whenever it was, I was a freshman at Mississippi College, and I had the opportunity to go to a brand new church to be the first youth and music associate. A big time minister of music and was kind of in retirement and went there. This was a brand new church. And back in the day, a new church typically was a double wide trailer. Can I get an amen? Anybody seen that? Double wide trailer, borrowed hymnals or loaned hymnals or discarded hymnals from someplace else who graciously landed in this double wide trailer and a little Wurlitzer organ and an upright piano on the other side and a choir loft that seated about 11 and a half people. And you were in a neighborhood somewhere. And that was the new Baptist church in that neighborhood. And I was a freshman and I got a phone call from a faculty member and I went to serve on the staff, my first staff position. And we had a great time. But I want to describe a conversation that I literally heard uh, one of my first weeks at this church. There were several men who were, uh, they were leaders in the church. They were obviously founding kind of guys. And I was standing there being the young quiet, trying to pay attention. And here's the conversation. They said, you know, John, they're talking to each other. You know, John, yeah, Bill. Uh, The other day I was down the street in so-and-so neighborhood, which was around the church. And I saw a moving van. There's another family moving in. Yeah, that house, uh, they, they sold it as quickly as they built it. This neighborhood is just booming. And I looked at the moving van and they were taking kids' bicycles out of the moving van. Has anybody called them yet? Have we been over to see them? Have we dropped off a cake? Or have we delivered cookies to them? Have we invited them to church yet? Somebody said, I don't know. I'm going to check with my wife. They were going to go by there, but I don't know if they've made it there. Somebody said, we've got to make sure they know Jesus. I said, absolutely. That's the, that's the first thing we need to do. We need to invite them and meet them and make sure they know Jesus. Ha- ask them to be a part of the church here. So I'm paying attention. I'm, I'm 18, first assignment on a church staff. I'm watching these guys, and they're giving focused leadership to the purpose of that body. They wanted to reach people, help them to know Jesus and love them well. About a year and a half later, towards the end of my two years there before I moved to be a youth minister at a bigger kind of established church, toward the end of my, my tenure, There were a couple of men standing around, including one of the three men that were in the conversation a year and a half earlier. And here's what the conversation was. Well, you know, Doug, man, we got to do something about this parking lot. We got weeds growing up in the asphalt. We got cracks. I don't know how much that's going to cost. Yeah, I know, Doug, but, you know, we we tried to build the multi-purpose building and and the, the roofing numbers are coming in high and we're really struggling and uh, yeah I know and were you at the meeting the other night we were working on bylaw yeah I was at the bylaw meeting I mean it was two and a half hours and oh my goodness but we're gonna have to nail down that vacation policy now all of those things are important uh just for the sake of us being casual today, I've been at the big boy church and the big boy meetings, and you've got to take care of the parking lot and the building. Uh, you've, you've got to have clean restrooms, and you've got to meet people where they are. You need policies and procedures and systems in place so people know what lane they run in so that they can have freedom within that lane to do the ministry they're called to. 
But those two conversations, one of the same guys as a common denominator there, illustrated to me the difference that happens when you lose your purpose and you become distracted by lesser things. It's not that these things are not important. It's not that these things are not necessary. But the thought of how are we going to reach this couple with their kids and make sure they know Jesus had taken second place to the lesser commitments of time to build structure and to do details and to put fresh paint on the walls. That's what happens when you lose purpose. And when you have a moment, people, where you have a, a, a challenge or you have a great change, it really is an opportunity to think, what about our purpose and our passion and our perspective? Westminster Catechism, our purpose, chief end of man to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. We do that joyfully. We're the body of Christ. Let me give you a couple of purposes. If you have a Bible, uh, you can join me. I'm going to roll through some scripture here. So uh, I want you to join me. There are all kinds of purpose statements, purpose stories the very revelation of God about who and what we are in relationship to him that are all centered, I believe, on glorifying him. We belong because of him. Ephesians 1 uh, is a great passage that talks about how he loves us and has adopted us and predestined us and lavished us with grace. And there's the phrase that I think I may have even quoted here before, which is, to the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. And that truth is woven throughout scripture, but when we think about purpose, I want to give you a couple of thoughts. Last time I was here at this place, in this uh, moment of teaching, I think it was a weekend as we talked about parenting and family. And I started in Deuteronomy 6. If you have a Bible, turn to Deuteronomy 6. And I want to make a case here for this being one of the early expressions of purpose for the church. And this is not about parenting, it's about the church presenting and propagating the truth of being God's covenant people from generation to generation. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 9, I'm sorry, verse 4 through 9. Now it's called the Shema. Uh, You may remember this, but the Shema was a declaration, an affirmation that God's covenant people, the Jews, would recite Many times, multiple times per day, and they still do. The truth is that this is the Shema, but there are actually two other passages. There's another passage found later in Deuteronomy and the one in the book of Numbers that are considered the Shema by Orthodox Jews. And I perhaps said to you another time that this may be the most oft-quoted passage of Scripture in God's Word. It goes like this, and it's familiar Because it's recited by Jesus later. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. There were some practical, tactical suggestions about how that command to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, our soul, and our strength, how that would be reminded us, reminding us all of the time. 
The reason I speak to this passage about purpose as a first passage is this. God has a strategy for how his covenant people, that's you if you know Jesus, how his covenant people would communicate from generation to generation the faith. And I'll just remind you, and if you're in a parenting season, it's particularly apropos, it is particularly practical You teach your children who and what to love. Golf, Ole Miss, shopping, shoes, gardening, TV shows. Whatever it is you love, your kids are taking notes subconsciously. And this mandate was you speak about your love for God, who you love with all that you have, every place that you walk. You're going out, you're coming in, you're lying down, you're getting up. Now that's a reminder because... Uh, We've talked about it before in the context of parenting, but it is really a purpose for the covenant people of God. If your Bible is still open, I'd like for you to turn way over to Matthew 28. Now, here's the passage you know is the Great Commission. The end of uh, Jesus' ministry gives to his disciples as a last commission, a last mandate for action. He gives them what we all know in this room, virtually everybody. And by the way, if you don't, I just want to say welcome. It's in God's Word, the Bible. But for most people in the room, this would be a passage we would have grown up with because it's really the marching orders for the church. Matthew 28, verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, this is after the resurrection before the ascension. They worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. We have a mandate, we have a purpose to make disciples. That, that's, that's, that's the big nugget right there. We are to make disciples. And we say often in recent years, we make disciples who make disciples. And that should be an easy reach because our discipling should impact people in such a way they see us making disciples and they would disciple themselves. They would have influence and impact for the sake of the gospel to the glory of God with others because we've made disciples. Now, that's an external kind of mandate for the church. In other words, it's, it's much outside the walls. We think about discipleship as a class or a system. In my past, I think about it as a system found in notebooks and meetings. But it's really about pouring into other people in a way that they say, I see how you live. I want to live like you. It's Paul saying, follow me as I follow Christ. We have a mandate to disciple making. So the Shema says generation to generation within the inside of the covenant people of God, we have an obligation to love God with all that we have and then to communicate that to the next generation to impress upon our children. And then I would suggest the Great Commission is an external, we have to move outside of the house, outside of these walls to reach and disciple. That's our job. That's our job. And when there's great change, we get to rethink what is our purpose. I mentioned passion and perspective, and they're really two sides of the same coin. So when we talk about passion, I'm really talking about a a response. It's not necessarily emotional, 
but it is a wholehearted response to the gospel. It is not getting over the gospel. It is Romans, the first chapter, that tells us, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God to everyone who believes for salvation, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. It's a not ashamed sense of awe about the gospel. My sweet wife, Kathy, tells me the story of being a teenager and coming to Christ and loving Jesus deeply. Came to Christ maybe at uh, 12 years old, 13 years old. Loved Jesus. There are pastors in this state who will remember Kathy handing them tracts and witnessing to them in parking lots in Jackson when they were hanging out on weekends because she was that girl. And she had a pastor who I know meant well as he was trying to bring maybe temper and moderation to Kathy's zeal and enthusiasm. But he said about her desire to share the gospel, you'll get over it. You'll get over it. And when we talk about passion, it is the fact we're not ashamed of the gospel in any way. But, and because, it's the power of God to salvation. Passion. Um, Revelation, uh, this is such a challenge, but in these messages to the churches, the revelation of John, uh, Jesus, yet I hold this against you, you have forsaken the love you had at first. A challenge that says our passion has to be a white hot love, a sense of awe and wonder and response to the grace of God. Mark chapter 6, keeping it real with you, I, I have talked about Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6 over the years. It's a very interesting passage. If you have your Bible, would you turn to the Gospel of Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. just want to land here and give you something to think about for just a moment. Uh, in my Bible, as in probably yours, there are some headings. They're editorial headings. They're not part of God's Word. They're what the editor gives us to sort of help us understand the stories, the chapters, the history as we read through God's Word. And mine says, a prophet without honor. First six verses, Jesus left there and went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given him that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, Only in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own house is a prophet without honor. And then God's word says in verse 5 and 6, He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. We talk about passion. I heard a message last week that just landed on me. And just very quickly, just the key idea for you today because it's such a challenge that fits with a great change that causes us to rethink purpose and passion and perspective. The communicator last week that I heard talk about this used this line, and it is so good. He said, 
for many of us, we're like the people in Nazareth. We're so accustomed to Jesus and Jesus' talk and the stories that we have begun to make what is familiar our foundation. So the familiarity of the stories, we've lost a sense of awe and wonder. The people in Nazareth said, hey, isn't this the carpenter? Don't we know his sisters and his brothers? He may have well made some table in their home or a chair or a trough. He may have worked with his hands until the time he was 30. And the people said, this is just Jesus. We know his brothers and sisters. It's just that guy. Familiarity robbed them of faith. And sometimes we get so comfortable and we're so guarded about having what we're comfortable and familiar with. We quietly, tacitly say, I don't want anything new. God, don't disturb me. Don't make me think differently, worship differently, minister differently. I just, we like what we like. Familiarity can rob us of faith. Passion is a faith expression. It is a sense of awe and wonder because God loves us because he loves us. And we say, God, I am not deserving of that. That's the essence of your grace. And because of that, my response will be worship. And finally, perspective. And really, perspective is the flip side, really kind of the other side of the coin of passion. Uh, Perspective is seeing life from God's perspective, God's view. And that is another way we describe wisdom. There's no place that is more succinct with wisdom than the book of Proverbs. If you have your Bible open just for a moment, uh, I'm going to tie all this together. But Proverbs, the first chapter, is the setup. Many of you familiar, but some of you maybe not. It's the setup for the book of Proverbs, which are wisdom sayings. Proverbs chapter 1, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, for attaining wisdom and discipline, for understanding words of insight, for acquiring a disciplined and prudent life, doing what is right and just and fair, for giving prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the young. Let the wise listen and add to their learning and let the discerning get guidance for understanding Proverbs and parables, the sayings and riddles of the wise. The fear of the Lord, verse 7, is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. Perspective. Perspective is seeing what's really important. It's seeing life from God's perspective. It's understanding the things in the kingdom of God that are important as opposed to our wants and our desires and what's most familiar to us. God's word tells us, above all else, gain wisdom. It tells us in Proverbs, uh, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. It's the center piece of life. Pulling this together for just a couple of moments, you're in a transition. There's going to be a change. You've been through changes before, changes of pastor, changes of circumstance. You moved into this building at some point in these 75 years. There have been a lot of changes in the life of this body. But it's a fantastic opportunity for you to prayerfully consider, are we adhering to our purpose or are we drifting? Are we living with the passion as people who have been graced by God? Do we grace others? Do we share 
the gospel? Do we disciple or do we simply meet? And then for perspective, to ask the question is that flip side of, of passion. Are we, are we valuing the right things? Are we choosing to invest time and resources into the things that, that matter most? Does our heart break for the things that breaks God's heart? Are we willing to love people the way that Jesus loves people? This is a great time to ask some questions. If you will allow me uh, to just speak for a second, I, I would love to take some time to do this, but I, I'm going to just pastor you for a minute if you will allow me about a transition with your pastor. This is part of what I do, and I see quite often. A lot of things I don't do, I see this. When you're in an organization, church is special because it's a shepherd, it's an elder, it's a pastor, it's an overseer who transitions by God's move to another place. There tends to be a leadership vacuum. And if we're not careful, there will be those who will say, now I would like to create some, some systems or some processes in my image. That happens in a lot of places. And I want to encourage you to be prayerful about purpose and passion and perspective and not rush in to make changes or try to pendulum swing somehow, but be grounded in the truth of God's word. All this lands on us because we need to remember. We need to remember the Lord our God, Deuteronomy 8.18. We need to be a church of, of purpose, a church of passion, and a church of perspective. Remembering the Lord our God because we belong to him is really critical. One brief story, and I'm done. There's a gentleman that reminds me amazingly of Dustin George. His name is Kirk Cloninger, and he's got a gray salt and pepper beard. He's very expressive. He's an actor. He's done Christian uh, acting and drama uh, for his entire adult life. He's in his 60s. Uh, Kurt has been all over the world. He's, he's really well known in a particular circle. And uh, he's a fantastic man. I got to know Kurt in the 80s and 90s. And he's, a, he's just a, a consummate storyteller. Well, I caught up with Kurt on Facebook. Can I get an amen? And I'm like, oh, I know this guy. Here we, here we go and we catch up. And this is the story he tells. Years ago, he married his wife, Tish. They had two children. They had a daughter, married, loves the Lord, children, doing great. They had a son named Capel, K-A-P-E-L. And Capel was uh, single and probably the adventurer in the family. And just about four years ago, Capel died in a motorcycle accident. And Kurt says, Tish and I went to the depths of loss. Some of you in this room have been there. He said, over time, we found God to be faithful and the grace of God to sustain us. And we found a new normal. You don't get over, you get through by the grace of God. He said, we got to the point we could breathe again and some things felt normal again. And about that time, he recognized that Tish had sort of lost a step in her thinking. So after searching out doctors, she had a Parkinson's diagnosis and she had quickly an onset diagnosis of dementia 
Kurt said she was declining very, very quickly, unusually quickly. So he planned the journey, the trip, the vacation of a lifetime to Ireland. So they went for three weeks. They rented a car. He took Tish. They got in their car and they drove the beautiful scenery and coastlines of Ireland. They were on the coast and they were headed to a speaking engagement for Kurt at uh, Christian Union, which is American, in this particular university in Ireland, was American students and Irish students, believers who gathered as a Christian fellowship. He was going to do a performance. So they're headed there, they're on the coast, and Tish looks at Kurt and says, I don't believe I know you. And he realized that that progression had really moved quickly. So when they got to the performance, that afternoon he gave her performance. Tish went to bed because she was tired. The students who loved Kurt said, why don't you not perform tonight? Why don't you talk to us about how you found God faithful in the loss of your son and the challenge with your wife? Kurt agreed to do that, and that night he talked about God's faithfulness and God's grace and God's sustaining power in his life. When he had finished giving his testimony of God's goodness, the students said, may we pray for you? Kurt said, absolutely. They put a folding chair in the middle of the room. Kurt sat down. These students gathered around him, American, Irish, Christian students, And he described their prayer time as fervent but gentle. I like that, fervent but gentle. And after they had prayed for some time, there was a lull, as there is sometimes when you gather like that. And this sweet Irish lilt voice of a precious young Irish young lady lifted up and she said, Lord Jesus, you know what it's like to have a forgetful bride. Kurt said he laughed and he cried because it was so real and so prophetic. And this morning, East Haven, a church that I love, we don't want to be a forgetful bride. We want to remember the God of our salvation. We want to remember our creator. And we want to live individually, I believe, individually and corporately, with purpose, with passion, and godly wisdom that brings us perspective. We're going to offer an invitation. I'm going to pray for us, and uh, our team will come back. An invitation here means a number of things. If you've never trusted Christ, if you don't know the kind of faithfulness of God in your life that a Kurt Cloninger knows, or that your pastor has experienced in God's leadership, or that many of you have walked with the Lord in, if you don't know that, this might be an opportunity to ask those questions or to surrender your life to Christ and let these people who are part of the family of God know. Or maybe you need to lock into the body of Christ, to a local church, so that you can serve and you can receive and you can worship. East Haven would be honored to have you as a part of this body. Or maybe you have something happening in your life. Maybe it's a great change for you. And you need prayer. You want somebody to hear you and see you and know you. 
and say, I want to pray with you about what's occurring in your life. That would be this opportunity. I'm going to be at the front. Other pastors will be available. Uh, There are folks, if you know that you know and we need to pray, we'll do what we need to do. But we're going to be the church as we offer this invitation time. Allow me to pray for us, please. Father, we're thankful that you called us to love you and you've loved us first. Father, I'm thankful that we're not created to wander, but we have purpose, and that is to find in you the source of our life. And God, you've called us to glorify you and to enjoy you forever, and and that's our heart's cry. I pray this morning, sir, that we would be challenged, that we would consider our life individually, that this body would consider Uh, decisions and structure and ministries in a fresh way. We pray for Dustin and Rebecca today. Again, just asking your grace, leadership and confirmation in that situation. And Lord Jesus, I pray for the man or the woman or the, the boy or the girl who've not trusted you that are present in this room today. And my prayer for them is that they would step across the line and give you their heart. They would respond to you with faith that their heart's cry would be to be a Christ Jesus follower from this moment forward. So I pray for strength and courage and awareness. Help us to continue to worship you in these moments before we walk out of these doors. We ask you to have your way as we continue to worship together. In Jesus' name, amen.